and parenting is harmful to children in her new book, It Takes a Parent. This talk from the Claire Booth Luce Policy Institute in Washington, D.C. is 50 minutes. I am so delighted to talk with you all today, not just about It Takes a Parent, the book, although I'm very happy to talk with you about that, um, but also, and even more important, It Takes a Parent, the idea. And why it seems to bother our culture so much when you say things like that. You know, I remember watching a uh, commercial for Tide Detergent years ago. This was actually one of the things that propelled me down this path of writing the book. And it featured a single mother going out on a date, and she's got young children, some teenage kids, and there's a, tie, a ketchup spill on her shirt and, of course, tied to the rescue. So she goes out with the fellow. She has a lovely time. She comes home, and she's on the front porch with him, and she's sort of thinking to herself, I wonder if I should kiss on a first date. She looks inside the house, she sees her young teenage daughter, and she says, I know, I'll ask my daughter. I thought, welcome to the parenting culture, a child and her inherent wisdom, a snapshot of how our culture, specifically the parenting culture, what I call the parenting culture, the culture of the experts, wants us to see our kids. Now, how is it possible that we've gotten to a point in our culture today where one famous parenting expert tells us Parents have to earn their authority, even when it comes to an infant. Now, if you're driving down the street and you get pulled over by a police officer, I would not suggest asking him, Officer, have you earned your authority to do this today? <laughs> Another expert tells us that to help a child grow up with strong self-esteem is the most important task of parenthood. The most important task? What about learning to esteem others? We're instructed by the experts, of course, to criticize only the behavior of the child, never the child himself, as if bad behavior showed up in the morning cereal box, not so often in the heart. And of course, we don't do that when our children are displaying good behavior. We want to see that as representative of a virtuous heart. So somehow, when it's bad behavior, it doesn't have anything to do with what's going on inside him. And remember, disguise your nose, yet another expert tells us, as much as possible. One expert even tells us of seven different ways to avoid saying no to your children. Now, I would suggest more parents should try the alternative of using no as a complete sentence, but that idea is not popular with the parenting culture. And you know, yet another parenting website um, that tells us that even if you know your child has lied, do not criticize or punish him. Instead, speak to him of how special the truth is. <laughs> and for heaven's sake, the parenting experts are united on this one. Do not spank your children. After all, we are reminded by, you guessed it, another parenting expert. Adolf Hitler was spanked as a child. Well, what's going on here is a culture that has abandoned the once unquestioned notion that parents really do know better than their children, in spite of all their faults, and the children desperately need that confidence in their parents if they are to thrive. And we see the result. Too many joyless, snarly, angry, disrespectful children and parents who are terrified by them, making everyone miserable. And so we actually have shows like Brat Camp and Nanny 911. And if you've seen those, you know these children who are just terrifying everyone around them, especially their parents. 
gets so out of control that then the nanny is called in to fix the situation. The parents throw up their hands and they ask the expert to come in and handle it. And often she does. She gets things back on track for a little while. But then what happens when the nanny leaves? It all falls apart again. A cover story in Time Magazine asked, does kindergarten need cops? Apparently the answer is yes, as more and more of our little ones, even from stable, intact, middle-class homes, are having such widespread behavior problems their teachers can't handle it. The Wall Street Journal reports on the growing trend in what's called parent coaches. And in this story, one mother and her trained parenting coach, after several discussions and consultations on how to handle the mother's three-year-old daughter who was throwing a huge tantrum every time they left the house, they came up with this response. They would provide little Ellen with a little plastic toy tiara every time she left the home without throwing a huge fit about it. Anything to buy peace, right? The problem is, what happens when you have to buy peace with a teenager? Well, it's no accident that a study conducted by the National Association of School Resource Officers found that two-thirds of school police officers believe that younger and younger children, I mean first and second and third grades, were acting more and more aggressively. And that's been borne out by other stories and, and studies as well. Every one of us has stories of kids, or perhaps better put, parents, out of control. I remember once, not long ago, this is while I was writing It Takes a Parent, I was at gymnastics class with my two littlest girls, probably two and four or five at the time, and some other children waiting for class were running around in this tight circle, and it was getting pretty fast and a little bit dangerous. And one mother, Eric's mother, told little Eric, maybe four or five years old, to stop running. And she said this to him five distinct times. And every time, little Eric completely ignored her. Finally, little Eric slammed into my little Madeline. Now, my little Madeline's pretty tough. She handled it with aplomb, no problem. <laughs> so then, Eric's mother got really upset. She said, Eric, that's it. No more. You, want, you need to sit down and be, and be still now. Eric looked at his mother, got right back up, and started racing around again. Eric's mother's response, well, she looked at her friend next to her, kind of shrugged, and they giggled. And that was it. Now, I don't know little Eric. I don't know what was going on with him that day. But I do know that this is a child who is used to disobeying and ignoring his mother with impunity. And that's a child in danger. And sometimes these stories of pushover parenting happen in our own homes, including mine. I remember once, as I, again, as I was working on It Takes a Parent, my brother and his 10-year-old daughter, my niece, came out to visit. That's when we lived here in Virginia. And uh, after they returned home, he called me. He said, you know, Betsy, Abigail told me the story. She said, gee, you know, Dad, um, I, I saw little Madeline, probably about four or so at the time, whining like crazy. And Aunt Betsy just gave in to her and gave her whatever she wanted just to get her to stop whining. <laughs> Apparently that ended the notion in Abigail's mind that I ran a tight ship. Um, I actually couldn't remember that instance, which suggests it's happened more than once. Another time, I gave um, one of my daughters some chocolate. She was angry at me about something. I tried to assuage her with chocolate. I mean, okay, it was a bad day, okay? And she was still so mad at me, she took the chocolate, rocked over to a garbage can, threw it in there with all her might as if to tell me, that's what you can do with your chocolate. And then, of course, I turned around and caught her out of the corner of my eye, furiously digging in there to get that piece of chocolate. So... I've been there, done that. I've stood in front of a TV set with a clicker trying to find something that would make my two-year-old happy at that moment, okay? We've all been there, we've all done that. 
you know, there are times when I hold up the book to my kids and say, do you see what I've written here? <laughs> you know, that's my home. Guess what? I'm not a perfect parent. I don't even know what a perfect parent is. But I'm not worried that my kids are going to become delinquent because of instances like those. I mean, they might become delinquents, I suppose, but I don't think it's because of instances like those. The question I try to ask myself is, what's the rule and what's the exception in my home? Hopefully the rule is persevering with my children, persevering to reach their hearts over time and doing the right thing over the long term. And that means picking up and moving on in the right direction, even when we fail in the moment. You know, it's not a surprise, by the way, that we see so many kids out of control, or maybe better put, parents out of control or in control of their kids in control of their parents. Kids have been attempting power grabs since pretty much the beginning of time. What's changed is the impotence of so many parents in the face of these power grabs. I like to call it imparentancy. You know, I'm not an expert. I'm just a parent of four young kids. Right now they're 11, 9, 6, and 4. And hopefully, like so many other parents I know, just unfortunately not our culture as a whole, I recognize what our culture is loath to see. And that is, while the experts tell us that baby is essentially born good and wise and full of good intentions, Mr. Rousseau, call your office, our darling children whom we adore and love are in fact selfish and self-oriented and prone to tyranny just like the rest of us. Just like they've been coming into the world pretty much since the beginning of time. Now, you don't have to see the Lord of the Flies to believe the children need civilizing. Have you ever heard anyone say, look at how that little three-year-old boy is behaving over there. He must be exhausted. He's acting so kind and sweet and generous and good. No. When our defenses are down, the true us comes out. And guess what? It's often not pretty. Well, we've become a culture that hates that truth, particularly when it comes to our kids, maybe because we're afraid of what it says about us. I think this is actually one reason we hate saying no to our kids. We don't like saying no to ourselves. We don't want to deny our passions, our desires of the moment. That's not fun. And this truth that we don't want to see the real aspect of our children's hearts comes out in ways large and small. We idolize our kids, and so too many of today's parents are afraid to say, don't interrupt. I have to be on the phone right now. You can't talk to me, too. Go play with the children outside and let the parents be in here together. Or perhaps one step closer to that bathroom door, pal, and you're in big trouble. I suggest more kids could benefit, and parents could benefit, and probably find a lot more joy in parenting if we tried some of these things out once in a while. The problem is by not doing that, we don't really lay the groundwork, do we, for having them respect us later on when we're dealing with much bigger issues of sex and drugs and a whole raft of other destructive behaviors. And I think that's thanks to a culture that hates the notion of anybody needing to be civilized. I mean, that notion might hurt our self-esteem. It doesn't make us feel good. It means there might be something not right with ourselves that we need to work on. But boy, we're a culture that loves the expert. Experts can fix anything and everything, right? And if you call in the right expert, well, then there's not a problem inside with me. There's no sacrifice I need to take, no self-examination I need to do to get, to get myself back on track. The expert can handle it and make it all good. And so the parenting culture, the culture of the expert, really took off in the 20th century when educator Ellen Key wrote a book called The Century of the Child, only probably should have been named 
the century of the child expert. The experts convinced parents over time that what their child needed was not really so much a parent's handling, he needed an expert's handling. Once you believe that a child came into the world, a blank slate, a good blank slate, full of wisdom and natural honesty, well then all you needed to do was to find the right technique, the right gimmick, to make them better, right? Now these experts conflicted with each other, they often conflicted with themselves. The bottom line is that a century later, we're still looking for the right technique. Think of that every time you see a promise on a parenting magazine, and they're there every month. Stop tantrums in 60 seconds, end sibling rivalry. Well, if that were really possible, I personally would love to know. If only it were that easy. In any event, it's not the, par the parenting experts haven't given us a lot of great information. It's the too few parents, it seems to me, are willing to decide for themselves, to have the confidence to decide for themselves what from the parenting culture works, what doesn't for their own families. So you get real questions like this from an online website, a very popular parenting website, from parents who really don't seem to have the confidence to just do some very basic things in their own home. They turn to the experts to make it all right. Here's one question. When I ask my four and a half year old to do something like set the table or clean up his toys, he insists he's busy or just says no. What should I do? Our three-year-old loves to boss us around. If I say let's wear white socks, she says blue. If I say let's brush our teeth, she says no. We want her to feel like she has a say. I mean, she's three. It's time. <laughs> but this is getting ridiculous. At least the parents recognize that. Bedtime has become an exhausting ordeal. My son always needs one more thing. How can I possibly get him to stay in bed? Well. You get the idea. I will say this. I don't think these parents are having a lot of fun. Now, I also am the first one to say that when we're having problems or challenges with our kids, we should go to somebody who knows our family and knows our kids. I've done that countless times. You know, this is happening with this child. That's happening with that child. Give me some insights, you older or wiser mom, and help me to, to see how. And just say, you know, it seems to me when this child does that and she knows my kids or they know my family, Today, I think parents are so terrified to go to the neighbor or to family members or, or to grandma, partly because they're afraid they won't be considered a perfect parent. And that's another shame, I think, from the parenting culture. I think that's another downside, that they've made us afraid to go to help where we can get it most, which is the people who know us and know our kids. Well, actually, the trend in parenting expertise has in many ways gone back millennia. I mean, Grandma and Socrates have always had something in common. They always denounced the youngest generation. They always said it was out of control. But two things are very different today. Whatever the complaints or views of children or child rearing, historically there has always been the common understanding that parents knew better than kids. I think we've lost that today. And their complaints were typically about Teenagers, children coming of age, that generation. It was not about five and six-year-olds. Today you don't have to watch Nanny 911 or Brat Camp to know that kids really are out of control. And our culture suffers for it and our kids suffer for it. Look, we're crazy about our kids and we should be. But when we idolize them and idealize them, thinking they come into the world full of wisdom and goodness and just thoughts. Have you ever actually heard a child say it's not fair because he's really interested in matters of justice? I haven't. 
And, but if we believe that, that they just need a little gentle parental cheerleading instead of our guidance, instruction, and dare I say, civilizing, we don't do them any favors. Because when we believe that with the right technique, we can virtually protect these little people, we don't give our kids the freedom to fail, to learn, to grow, and to be loved as they really are. We deny them, in fact, the full expression of their humanity. Instead, following the cultural dictates of today, we too often protect our kids from every adversity. Don't you cut my kid from the team. We give them choices at every turn at the youngest ages. We deliver no's dripping in sugar. We agonize with them about their all-important feelings. We tell them how wonderful they are, even when they aren't being wonderful at all in the moment. And guess what? A child knows it. In ways large and small, we really let them believe that the world revolves all around them. And you know, sometimes I think the results of this can be a little bit funny. You know, my family loves to ski. All my kids learn to ski at a young age, and we're crazy about it. One year, we went to a ski resort in California for a week. Before a trip, I called the ski area to make reservations for ski school. My two older kids got squared away easily, but Madeline, who was just weeks away from her fourth birthday, presented a problem. If they're under four, they have to choose to ski, the ski school representative told me. Huh? What does that mean? Well, you know, we don't take them outside unless they want to go. It's entirely up to them. I thought to myself, if Maddie wants to pay the bill, it's up to her. Meanwhile, it's up to me. <laughs> but the ski school was adamant. It had to be her choice. My husband, Ben, asked me, now, does Maddie have to initiate the subject of skiing? Or does the ski school, or can the ski school at least broach the idea to her? We honestly didn't think these people could be serious. They were. Ben and I put her in ski school, said we want out, they're out there on the hill, only to come back later in the day to find her watching videos and eating Rice Krispies treats. We asked if she'd been out. Well, the instructor said no, no, she, she'd wanted to stay inside. Now, from our little one's point of view, it was a totally rational decision, an obvious choice with clear consequences. She could either stay warm inside eating Rice Krispies treats and watching videos, or go out on that cold hill with boards in her feet and risk falling down. Given what she knew in that almost four-year-old brain of hers, she was making a good choice. This was an idolized child, according to the ski school, who should be given choices about something she knew nothing about. She couldn't have the idea that she was missing fun, that she was not learning a skill. Well, her dad and I took her out of that ski school and put her into another one of the nearby mountains with an um, Argentinian ski school instructor. Now, he had no knowledge of the parenting culture in the United States. So he did not give Madeline any choices. He had her out on the hill, and with a within a couple of days, she was skiing great, and she could ski with the family. How sad for all those other little boys and girls who don't, or who do have parents, who think that they need, the children need to be in charge. Now, that's kind of an amusing scenario. It makes for a good story. Sometimes, the consequences of the idolized children are a lot more serious. Here's what a reader of a column of mine, a high school teacher, wrote to me about these all about me, I know what I'm doing, I'm full of wisdom children. Each day, she said, I see young people who have not a clue as to the skills and attitudes they're going to need as they progress through the real world. Many students believe that their grade should be based upon the fact that they merely breathe enough air in my classroom over a specified period of time. We have pumped our young people full of self-importance in the hope that this would transfer into their acceptance of the importance of others. Yet we have created nothing more than a generation of selfish and rude people who truly believe they are the sun around which all else revolves.
You know, Dr. Patricia Dalton is a practicing psychologist. She's actually a psychologist here in D.C. And she wrote an article in the uh, Washington Post a couple of years ago. And she talked about this trend and what she's seeing in her practice. She called it the Uber parents. This is how she describes Uber parents. They decorate their children's rooms in stimulating colors, buy educational toys, forego playpens, and give baby massages. They space their children according to the best advice of the child development experts. They sign their kids up for gymnastics classes and apply to the most progressive preschools. They let their kids interrupt them. They drop everything to take advantage of a teaching moment. And perhaps most important, they take every opportunity to build up their child's self-esteem. Dalton says the children of Uber parents end up in her practice because as adults, they don't want to leave the family nest. Why would they? You know, just as Dalton describes it, parents like mine, parents like ours, used to actually say things like, don't bother me unless you're bleeding. And if you want sympathy, look it up in the dictionary. <laughs> My parents would take them, the youngest of five, and they would take us all to friends' homes all the time. That was very common then. But inevitably, the parents would enjoy the other parents. The kids would enjoy the other kids. We would all have a fabulous time. And it would never occur to us to have the two groups mix. And you know what? I think children of that age, less all about me kids, are probably healthier adults today. Now, this is in contrast to little Demi. Demi's mother wrote about her on a blog. And Demi's mother practices attachment parenting, which you'll get the gist of in a moment. Now, that may be a fine thing. But it's a growing practice. And I can't help but think one of the reasons it's growing is because of uh, our views of the idolized child. I'm a stay-at-home mom, and Demi spends all her time with me. I'm rarely away from her. I don't want to be. The entire first year and a half of her life, I was only away from her for a combined total of 26 hours. I only left when I absolutely had to. In those times, she stayed only with grandparents who adore her. Our bond is strong as nature intended. This is the way parenting was supposed to be since the beginning of time. Now, I would actually argue that in the Western world, it's been that way since circumstances like poverty forced it. But nonetheless, I have to ask, and I, I'm sure Demi is a real charmer. I don't know anything about this family. I'm just guessing that Demi's father might have wanted more than 26 hours with Demi's mother over the course of a year and a half. <laughs> well, you get the picture of idolized children. And this comes from parents who bought into the notion of our culture that Children really don't have hearts that need reaching and shaping and guiding and directing and, yes, saving. And that their parents are in a unique position and have a unique authority that allows them to best pursue that task in their child's lives. And it takes a parent. My goal is not to encourage parents to dismiss the advice of the parenting experts. There's lots of great information there and even wisdom there. What I do encourage is for them to re-embrace the cultural truths of the ages, that we parents aren't perfect, but we really do know better than our kids. And they really benefit when we have the confidence to lead and guide them and get them off the pedestal. By doing these things, we don't minimize our children's humanity. We recognize it. We encourage it because we see them as they really are. That gives a child a lot of freedom. And you know what? I think it gives us parents and our kids all a lot more enjoyment in this process of parenting. Look, I have four wonderful kids. They are the light of my life. But every one of them believes that if the world does not revolve around them, it should. And it's my job to gently and lovingly dissuade them of that view. I know so many other parents who share that commitment. The problem is that our culture doesn't. 
And so one of the things and the themes I speak to, and it takes a parent, is the importance of reaching a child's heart. You know, sometimes we can get the right behavior at the moment. We can manipulate the circumstances or promise a punishment. And we can get the child to do what we want him to do at that moment and yet still leave the child with little more than a better understanding of how to manipulate his world to his ends. Now don't get me wrong, I'm all for getting the behavior right at the moment when we can. But I'm just saying that in other words, I don't want my child to lie, not lie, just because he knows he's going to get in trouble or even because he knows it's wrong. I want my children to not lie because they love the truth. And that's my goal in persevering for those hearts. Now, that transformation is not going to happen fully this side of heaven. But that understanding that I'm on a heart mission is central to what I'm trying to do as a parent and persevering for them, it gives me a lot more enjoyment. And it also lets me handle my flops as a parent um, with, I think, a little more long-term perspective. Unfortunately, we live in a culture that does not want to believe that the greatest danger facing a child are the foolish tendencies of his own heart. Because if we admit that, we might just have to admit that's true for us parents, too. I think the question of whether or not it takes a parent is a fundamental one, not just for our families, not just for whether or not you buy my book, <laughs> but ultimately for our culture itself. Now, as you know, these things are not just for the married mom and dad who have a family that looks a certain way. As many of you know, and I talk about this in the book, as it did happen while I was writing it. I'm recently a single parent myself. Like so many single moms and dads out there, that was never my choice. And when it was made for me, I actually had to put aside the work on the book for a little bit. But when I picked up the manuscript again, I think what amazed me is, except for the tweaks where I talk a little bit about what happened and I refer to my ongoing belief that divorce is a tragedy for families, nothing had changed in what I thought about kids. If anything, I just realized more than ever that how we raise our children really matters. Whether we raise our kids with character really counts. But we can't do that if we don't give our children confident parents who are willing to say, I've been given a wonderful position of authority in your life for a reason. And that you need me to have that confidence, the confidence to pursue your heart for the good. Every child needs that, whether they are in a married or a single parent home. The practice may get more complicated for some of us, and our homes, whatever, whether they're two-parent or single or whatever, they look like, in that sense, they're still all going to look different from each other. They should. Look, I don't care if parents don't listen to me. I'm not another expert. I'm not the expert. All I care about is if parents listen to themselves and begin to think rightly about their kids and begin to trust their instincts to challenge the experts and to dare to parent whatever that looks like in their own homes. Now, even for many of you here who probably haven't had children yet, I encourage you to start thinking about how these truths, how we have this horror today, parents having this inherent authority, um, that children even need to be civilized, how that goes against some fundamental tenets that our culture clings to so tightly. But when we extrapolate that truth into the culture as a whole, this idea that we can't really have inherent authority because of our position, boy, does that make room for a whole lot of social breakdown. 
I think it would be great for us to start thinking now, even now, about how our view of human nature and a parent's place in his child life, in his child's life, really affects how we will bring up baby and what kind of people our children will become. And we don't know how our children's characters are going to be tested one day. We don't know if at the moment of testing they're going to behave more like Bruce Ismay, who was president of the White Star Line when the Titanic went down and grabbed an empty seat in a lifeboat. He didn't, contrary to myth, he didn't displace anyone, but he grabbed an empty seat. The women and children first call had gone out. And by doing that, he could have really broken the ranks and, and caused some swamp lifeboats. And for that reason and, and other reasons, he lived the rest of his life in disgrace, even though he got back to New York alive. At the moment of testing, he didn't do the right thing. Contrast that to Todd Beamer. When he was in that Flight 93, he and his comrades, they had a moment of testing too. And we don't know what was going through their minds or if they knew they were going to die, but we know that he did what was right at that moment because he too had had his character trained over time. So when that moment of testing came, it tested well. What kind of children are we raising? A dear and wise friend said to my husband Ben and me, before we even had kids, this is the advice I would give you, decide early who will run your home because it will be your children or it will be you but it cannot be both. Now that whole formulation is dangerously alien and even offensive to our culture. But those of us who care desperately about our kids and our culture can, I think, only begin to reclaim it one household at a time when we fully admit, embrace the concept that, you know what, it doesn't take an expert. It really does take a parent. Thank you. I'm a member of the Maryland House of Delegates. Um, I uh, used to work in county government prior to doing that, and we would get reports from our police that they were called for uh, domestic incidents to help resolve the conflict because the parents wanted to take the children on vacation and the children didn't want to go with the parents. Wow. <laughs> so, I mean, what you're saying is absolutely correct and, and it can be extrapolated out into mm -hmm. the enormous governmental cost of other agencies having to pick up the parenting role. Sure. Thank you for sharing that comment. Great point. I'm Colette Caprera from Heritage and uh, I have a 16-year-old, <laughs> one son. Um, I wondered what if you address this in the book or what you think the role of uh, the decline of an extended family, you know, how people are scattered and also maternal employment has to do with either lack of confidence or guilt that opened the door to these experts and the mm -hmm. ideal, uh, you know, <laughs> idealization of your children and things. I think that may well be part of it. If, if moms feel they're away from their kids for too long, you tend to begin to want to make up for it in other ways, potentially, and dads can do that too. But the rise in the parent experts started long before women went into the workforce in, in force. I mean, it was active even in the first part of the 20th century. Um, so I think that can be a factor, but whether you're working or not, it seems to me you can still step back and say, what's best for my kids? Even when you're tired, even when it gets more complicated, give yourself a break for those things. But still, we need to realize whatever our situation, our marital situation, our work situation, 
our kids benefit when we get them off the pedestal and have that position of authority in their life, however that looks on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and the first part of your question is a great one about extended family, and I do talk about that in It Takes a Parent. And one of the things I suggest is that I don't agree it takes a village, but it sure can take a neighborhood and a family. And I happen to be very fortunate and live in a neighborhood where I have uh, fabulous neighbors who will call me if they see a problem with my kid. If my child crosses the street and doesn't look both ways, I'll get a call from a mom. And I like getting those calls, and I've made calls about their kids, and we appreciate that about each other. And boy, does that help me. Um, too many of us are missing that now because we're too afraid to say I'm anything less than a perfect parent. And guess what? I am. Um, extended family, I'm very fortunate I have an extended family in the Chicago area. We're close. I have four older siblings and they're wonderful to me and my kids and I hope that I'm a good influence on theirs. And again, I think that's something that's, that's lost in our culture today. And one thing I will say is that I really appreciate when my family members correct my children, even if I'm standing right there. If they say, you can't talk to your mom that way, say please. I think, thank you. I don't care if we're married or not. That can make our job easier if we're open to that. Anybody else? How about right here, this nice young lady. Um, my name is Christy Mead. I'm with the Leadership Institute. Mm -hmm. um, I'm wondering because society, even since I was in school, it, it's just it's changed so much, and I don't have children uh, yet. But I'm wondering that I have friends who are school teachers, and they mentioned how out of control children are anymore as a society. Mm -hmm. Is there anything that we can do since there's so many parents who neglect and they let their children run their house? You know, I think we can, and I do have actually a whole chapter on that, the last chapter in the book, Challenge the Experts for the Sake of Your Children. I do speak to that very issue, so I won't take up too much time with it now, except to say that we can start by being who our children need them to be. And some of the problems you're referring to come from parents who are afraid to say, as my parents would say to me when I was little, I am not Sheila Cooper's mother, I am your mother, and the answer is no. And I think sometimes we parents fall into peer pressure too. And that's the first step for those of us who really care about these things and hopefully see these things rightly to helping our kids. That sometimes we are a little bit adrift in a sea of a very crazy culture. But I do talk about that more and it takes a parent. Mm -hmm. uh, my name is Teresa Hart, and I'm with a local publishing agency. My understanding is you've had a lot of radio interviews up already, and so you've talked a lot to either experts or generally parents. In general, how has been the reception? Are people resisting you from an expert point of view, or are they welcoming what you're saying? What's your take on how people react? You know, I've actually been overwhelmed, Teresa, at how well the book has been received. I'm actually looking for a little more fight. You know, I want a little. I want a little controversy. Over and over again, I've probably done 40 or 50 radio interviews. Inevitably, both the hosts and the callers are saying, you're right, I see this. I, I see it in the homes down the street. I see it in my home. It's a problem. It's creating huge problems in schools and neighborhoods. And then might, they might have questions about what to do on it. And then I'll often say, I'm only the expert on my little kids and even then I often go to the other people in the neighborhood or my family to help me with things I'm dealing with. That's the first best thing you can do when you have a problem with one of your children is to not be afraid to go to somebody who knows you and your children well because oh they might think you're not a perfect parent. You're not. Get over it. But by, by and large I've been really 
quite amazed and, and, and pleased at how the book has been, um, been received. And I'm looking for a little fight, but it hasn't, hasn't seemed to come up quite yet. Anybody else? This nice young lady here, and then we'll go to you. Well, I think homeschooling can be great. I have nieces and nephews who are homeschooled, and I've seen it have a wonderful impact on them. Um, I actually homeschooled my two older children for kindergarten before putting them into the then a private school and now public school. My children, my three older ones, are all in public school now. There's lots of great reasons to do it. I think it's hard. I think that one concern is if we are homeschooling because we think that by keeping our children away from the culture we can always protect them from the culture or that we can so orient their life perfectly as it needs to be you know this class now but not later just as we want it I think we have to think through those things because life isn't like that they're gonna get to a job one day and they're gonna have to do what the boss tells them whether or not they think it should fit in with their day I don't think most home families schooling families do that I'm just suggesting that's something to think about and again I do talk about that more and it takes a parent I have a whole chapter called Led Zeppelin and the Culture Wars and I think sometimes people like us the way we think um, conservatives Christians we tend to be more afraid of the culture than we need to be and I talk a little bit more about how to deal with that and it takes a parent and to embrace it and engage it and enjoy it a little bit more it can be a pretty great place but to help our children to think about it rightly so that they really are prepared to enter it at a later date and um, I think homeschoolers can absolutely do that and they do I just invite them all of us to think through how and why we school our kids and what our goals are and our priorities and if those really make sense in the culture in which we live yes ma'am um, Mary Catherine Ham from townhall.com mm -hmm. and I was just wondering you probably addressed it in the book which I have not read yet but um, you mentioned spanking I was wondering if you could just expand on how you feel about that issue well I have a whole chapter on spanking and I'm glad you asked the title of it is to spank or not to spank and why it's not really the question and um, again I go into that at length and it takes a parent but what I basically say is I am not necessarily for spanking I am for discipline that reaches a child's heart and I think that spanking can be one method of that and I go into the research which is not what any of you would suspect in fact I have delved into it far more than I ever meant to um, to show that in fact the best research and the few studies that have done have, been, have shown that spanking can not only be very effective but it actually can do things like increase parental affection towards their children it's very interesting um, the problem is the anti-spanking zealots the parenting culture have so terrified parents away from this once common means of discipline and in fact it is still used on most um, three and four year olds in the United States they've so terrified them that in many cases they've either taken a legitimate tool out of the parental discipline tool chest or they've caused parents to feel so guilty about it that they spank in a way that perhaps is furative or angry and one of the the um, studies I, I talk about actually one of the anti-spanking studies shows that it's most effective when it's seen by the child as being normative when the child really believes this is what happens to other kids and this is okay my parents love me that's when it's most effective and I wonder if the parenting culture has in a sense hurt kids by giving parents that view of what was once an effective means of discipline look any discipline can be misused timeouts can be misused if a child believes that he's being given a timeout for the parents benefit and not his own well 
He can have a resentful heart. Same thing with spanking. Spanking isn't a magic pill, but it's unfortunate that the parenting culture has so tyrannized parents, particularly on that issue and a host of issues, that they've really scared us away, I think, from doing our job. But anyway, the whole question of spanking and discipline in general is, there's a whole lot more information than that in It Takes a Parent. There's a whole chapter on it. And um, that, was, that was an issue I really enjoyed getting into a little bit because I think it speaks to much bigger things about our culture than just the issue of physical discipline or not. Yes, ma'am. Maria Kowalska. Um, I'm a writer born in Europe and American citizen now. My question is hearing about increasingly about um, the undereducated preschool teachers and assistants, some of them having no high school even. Um, what is your opinion about the need or the possibly already uh, beginning trends of introducing classical education with substance, uh, morals, uh, and more serious um, and traditional education in the preschools? Well. My book, It Takes a Parent, is not really a policy book, so I wouldn't get so much into that, but what you're touching on is something um, that I actually do talk about in the book, which is how we push our kids. And I think sometimes the way they learn, and evidence seems to back this up, is at play, at just being allowed to be a kid and not being pushed. So for instance, the trend is on now to teach very young children to read. And when we lived here in Virginia, the children were taught in kindergarten to be proficient readers. Now that I'm in a school district in, in Illinois, it's back the kids learn in first grade. Well, there's a reason, and I'm not, I, we had a wonderful school here, we have a great school there, but this trend hasn't caught on there as much, at least where we are. And the reason is that historically it was understood, even before we knew how the brain worked, that physiologically there are things that click into place at about six and a half that allow a child to read successfully. So it's not been taught earlier than that since the beginning of time is my understanding. Certainly not in the United States. It was always about when a child learned to read. Well, suddenly we got this notion, oh no, that's not good enough. You know, we got to get into Harvard, got to start earlier. And I mean, now you have these preschools that teach um, scissor cutting skills, literally, because parents are terrified their child's going to get to the second year of preschool without good scissor cutting skills. That, I think, is out of control. The idea of a classical education at the right age I think is a wonderful thing and parents have to decide when that age is for their own children and this is why so many wise parents I think do choose to homeschool because that possibility for them and their kids is not available at any local public or private school but I'm just saying that I think we have to balance that with not pushing our kids to, so hard that we take away their childhood or that we tell them the reason they're important is because of what they do instead of the facts I tell my kids, they're made in the image of God. I love them even when they fail, and there's nothing they can do to change that. And I think that's something all of our kids need to actually physically hear us say. Anything else right here? Uh, my name's Carrie Sheffield. I'm with the National Journalism Center. Mm -hmm. um, I come from a family of eight children. Ah, wonderful. Uh, yeah. My mom would go grocery shopping and people would ask her if she worked at a preschool. Or oh, isn't that great? <laughs> um, but yeah, it's very, it's increasingly becoming more rare to mm -hmm. find such a large family. And so I'm wondering, um, what are your views on family size? Like, how does that, does that contribute to the culture to have the trend to have smaller families? Or 
Oh, I think you're on to something there. And even Patricia Dalton, whom I talked about earlier when I talked with her about this, said that she thinks one of the dangerous trends for kids, if you want to put it that way, is these diminished family sizes. Because then you really can put your eggs all in one basket. You really, it's easier to idolize a child. My guess is you were not idolized. You were loved like crazy, but you were not idolized. And, you know, this is purely conjecture on my part, but it just seems to me every time I meet somebody from a really big family, they're really normal. And I, I, know single, I know single children too, and they're great, but it just seems to be a trend. And um, I would love to have had, had more children. I myself come from a family of five. But there's other reasons for that too. I think the decline in our religious beliefs and our culture has also caused us to put so much into the one thing that's going to live on after us. And then it just goes back to those wild and crazy experts. But you know, I do like to say that my goal for my children is heaven, not Harvard. Now, if they get to Harvard on the way to heaven, and there's very little indication at this point that that's going to happen, <laughs> but if they do, um, I think it's marvelous. But if I take my eyes off my goal, I fail my kids. And that can be, any parent can have that view of their kids, whether they've got one child or eight. Sometimes you need to work harder to get that orientation right, but it's possible for anyone, I'm convinced. Yes, ma'am. I'm Darcy Richardson, also with the National mm -hmm. Journalism Center. I was wondering, um, how closely do you think parents should monitor the types of media that their children are exposed to specifically? I know uh, preteen girls start reading like um, Glamour, Seventeen. All those media outlets have now scaled down mm -hmm. for the preteen audience, and I was just yeah, wondering Yeah, they have. I've, I've seen that trend. Um, I think children, particularly as they get older, don't have much of a right to privacy. They sure don't have it in my house. And there will never be a telephone or a, te or a television set or a computer in any of my children's rooms. They all know this. On the other hand, I think there are times to help our children to think rightly about the culture. So for instance, you might see a poster of an alluring woman, or a magazine, let's say, with an alluring woman in the grocery store if I'm with my son. And he's seen it, so now what do we do? And I might say, you know, um, it is so sad. You know, God gave us this gift of sexual allure between a husband and wife. I might not quite put it that way. How sad to see it selling, you know, cars instead. You know, how, boy, that's really demeaning. That's really sad that our culture does that. And I don't do that all the time. But instead of panicking that he's being exposed to that, hopefully I'm helping him to think about it a little bit. And one of the things I did very early when my son was little and he was, would look at these women's magazines, I would find him doing that. He just thought these women were so pretty. And um, inevitably, if you've noticed, the women in these magazines, their looks have gotten poutier and poutier over the years. You know, Christy Brinkley always had a big smile. Not today's women in the swimsuit edition of, of, um, of the magazine that does what's uh, Sports Illustrated. Oh no, now it's all the pouty look. And you know what? You can't, I've really tried this, you can't have a wholesome pose and the pouty look at the same time. You really can't do it. <laughs> I experimented with that once because I was writing a column about it. You really can't. You can't sort of be wholesome. Whereas Christy Brinkley was more covered up and she had a big smile and she was really attractive and the models of her age were very different and I've actually looked, compared the magazines. So one of the things I told my son early on was, you know, I just think that woman would be so pretty if only she smiled. And now that comes back to me from time to time and he will say, you know, mom, that lady just wasn't smiling. I, I'm, you know, she would have been so much prettier if she had. I don't know if that's going to stick with him, 
I hope it does. I hope in that small way of teaching them a little bit about engaging with the culture and not just keeping it away from them. I don't want him to just say, oh, I can't look at that if this image, you know, gets on a computer screen in spite of my filtering device. I want him to think, oh, how sad. Not sure I'm going to get there with a the teenage boy. I'm just saying that over time, that's my goal and my hope, and that those lessons get into some fertile ground. Yes, ma'am. I'm Ying Li, I'm an anonymous um, parent. Mm -hmm. I grew up in a family of six, but mm -hmm. unfortunately I can have only one mm -hmm. after many miscarriages. Do you think this is a trend that parents pay too much attention with preschool and the lower grades and when kids are in fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, at that time they started to form independence, independent ideas parents are sort of hand off to the teachers at school. I think that mm -hmm. problem comes from there. Oh, I think there is I think there is something to that. And I had my uh, daughter's first grade teacher said something very much like that to me, that she's been teaching for 25 years. She's seen such a fundamental change in how parents deal with their children, um, particularly in the classroom. They always, if there's the slightest variation from a mean, they want the experts called in, they want studies done, they want a protocol ordered. Sometimes a child just needs to be free to be a little bit different or to learn at his own pace. But you know, um, what you bring up about um, only child, children, and, and I'm, I'm sorry that you wanted more um, and weren't able to do that, but um, if you may know, in Italy the birth rate has plummeted just in a single generation. And I had a professor there who deals with these issues write to me and say he really believes it's because children there and in France and other countries that have seen their birth rates drop, he said these children are so out of control, they're so miserable that what he's finding is that's why they don't want to have bigger families. <laughs> so, you know, you can sort of see these parents tyrannized by one or two children, of course they don't want to have more. And I think, um, and I think that's a shame because so many, um, you know, great people would love to have more kids, but um, so many people just give up and they might have really enjoyed them, but they're not enjoying those first two. And that's more than anything, what I hope parents can do is have the confidence to really enjoy their little ones because you know what, they're great. And I think we all know that. Thank you all so much for coming. We just have a... Betsy Harn is a nationally syndicated columnist for the Scripps Howard News Service. It Takes a Parent is published by G.P. Putnam's...